because making games is easy. Right? Right. It's Behind the Line Radio with your host, Kinetic. And it starts now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Line Radio. I'm your host, Kinetic, a.k.a. Nick. And this week, I am just going to start with the elephant in the room because... We were really surprised the other day when we saw Shigeru Miyamoto come out on stage at the Apple keynote address, and yeah, Mario's coming to the iPhone, and Android, but uh, yeah, Mario on mobile. Um, Joining me today, I got uh, Blake uh, to talk about some of this stuff. This isn't going to be our main topic for today, but I I figured, you know, this is a big thing and it goes into a lot of what I talk about all the time, so we're just going to start here. Blake, how you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. All right. So, yeah, I don't know. I've been trying to read up a bit on this. Uh, I haven't had a whole lot of time, but I don't even know if this uh, Mario on mobile is part of the whole uh, DNA titles thing. I wouldn't think so, because they announced that it's not free to play. It's 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 a runner. It doesn't look like it's an infinite runner because it's broken down into stages. So I'm also going to guess that it's not procedurally generated, which makes sense to me, because that doesn't really seem to fit with Mario. There's a lot yeah. of very carefully crafted stages and all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. I'm really curious to see how this is going to turn out. Um, you know, my my initial reaction would be that this could be sort of like a Angry Birds type of deal where all the levels are like crafted and you, mm. uh, at least up front you would just like pay a certain amount of money and maybe they kind of keep rolling out new updates uh, as the the life of the game keeps going on. But to me, this this seemed like the most unexpected, expected Nintendo news <laughs> that we could have possibly gotten. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I remember when, when Miyamoto was walking out on stage, I felt so confused because it wasn't like there were any sort of rumors that that was going to happen or that they were going to show up or show up to the events or anything. But, um, <laughs> you know, this is just, this is what everyone expected Nintendo to do, you know, a couple of years ago when they first announced that they'd be dabbling in mobile and then, they didn't do it. They gave us Mitomo, mm-hmm. and and now they're back with it, and nobody saw it coming. Well, that's that's one of the things that's kind of built in Nintendo's DNA is is the whole you know blue water business, especially since uh, since Iwata. But they go for the blue water. They go for something unexpected, and that kind of makes sense with Mitomo. And then you know you don't want to abandon what brought you to the dance, and now we're back to Mario, and maybe with the experiences they had with Mitomo. They understand how to, you know, utilize the platform a bit better. Maybe they feel more confident that Mario is a strong enough IP that it'll um, warrant a premium, you know, paid to download, not a free to play model. Because, you know, on you, uh, pardon me. There's a a lot of people who will decry the free to play model on mobile, but you know, that's what dominates everything. It's what gets the the vast majority of downloads and revenue and just mind share. So you would have to, I, I can understand them not wanting to make a Mario free to play game, but, uh, they would certainly have to feel confident to put in the time and resources to make it a paid game. Yeah. I, you know, I'm curious where the, um, where the price point's going to fall for this because it feels almost like an instant download, uh, for anyone who is a fan of Nintendo or just games in general. If if they nail a price point, I could see them breaking in, you know, tons of money, uh, and just because everyone will want to download it, everyone will want Mario, 
you know, I don't, I don't see why, why you wouldn't want to play this game if it's a reasonable price. Yeah, I, I would guess that it would be $3 and probably no more than 5 at, because it, $2 seems a bit like uh, uh, um, below the value of the franchise. $3 to me feels like the sweet spot. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not someone who prices things on mobile, so that's just a guess on my part. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure there's other people who would who would argue for much higher prices. I mean, hell, if it was a Square Enix release, they'd probably sell it for twenty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I've I've definitely been turned off of uh, picking up some of their Final Fantasy games, especially Tactics, because it's like fifteen dollars and yeah, you know, I own them on so many other platforms already. <laughs> I don't want to triple, quadruple dip or anything. <laughs> yeah, the uh, but this this also just feels. To me, it feels right. It feels like sort of the culmination or the next practical step for the um, the plan that had been laid out before about expanding their IP to different sectors to sort of appeal to people, expose their strong IP in more ways to bring people to the core experience on the Nintendo console. So Mario as a runner with crafted levels... Um, it, and, and not just trying to get through it or go as far as you can, but trying to collect as many co coins and points as you can within the stage creates somewhat of a metagame where you can see in the videos they're trying to, you, you have to try to find the right path to get the most stuff and you may have to, you know, figure out different ways to go about doing things. So there's, uh, some variety there and it's a very strong Mario flavor but it's not the whole thing and can appeal to get people, you know, to try the full experience, you might say. And this is something they've been talking about for a while with, you know, let's have, you know, Mario at theme parks and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that thing that they showed off at the very end too, the sort of competitive aspect of it against your friends, um, that, that seemed really interesting. And, uh, I, I can see that kind of keeping a lot of people going, you know, always trying to one-up your friends on leaderboards and stuff. I've never really been a big uh, global leaderboard person, but whenever there's, you know, like friendsless leaderboards, I, I get kind of into those and competitive. <laughs> yeah, so when you get to the global leaderboards, you just start competing against the biggest, baddest, <laughs> which, you yeah. know, is kind of discouraging. But if you can get a group of people to play together, then that... that uh, gives it a, a, a whole a kind of a more intimate feeling kind of a more bringing people together feeling and that's that's probably what the moniker social gaming is is really about at its core definitely and i'm curious to see where where this uh makes their other games land too you know if if i remember correctly there was supposed to be an animal crossing game coming out there's supposed to be a fire emblem game coming out and i could have sworn that those were before the end of 2016. So I'm kind of curious to see what, what these launch windows look like. Well, uh, I mean, <laughs> before the end of 2016 and, and, you know, game development and mobile development, them dates slip. So, I, you know, <laughs> if it moves, I'm not going to be surprised or disappointed or anything. It's just, you know, that's just how it goes. You got to roll with it. It can yeah. be disappointing, but you got to roll with it and not do something stupid like send a death threat to the guy who just reported that the date slipped. Yeah. Stupid <laughs> things exactly. Like that. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh one kind of final point that I wanted to make about this is is something that I've said before where it really feels to me like this is Nintendo returning sort of returning to 
or reclaiming or coming to the first time, you might say, to the house that they built. Because Nintendo, with the DS, were the ones who really showed how a touchscreen can be an effective game interface, uh, particularly with games like, uh, ooh, I can't remember the name of it. I want to say Kirby's Epic Yarn, but it's not that one. It's a, a, a Kirby yeah. game where it was only played with the stylus. Right, yeah, you would draw the little rainbow. Yeah, that's it. the one. Yeah, that was a good one. I, I wish I could remember the name, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just cool stuff. So uh, anything else you wanted to say on this topic, or shall we get to the main meat of it? No, we could probably move on. Um, okay. So um, a little while ago, there was an article on Game of Sutra where uh, a member of the community wrote a piece called Swimming with the Whales. Uh, talking about his experience in a particular free-to-play game, and he had been around. He was a pretty hardcore player for this game and wound up getting invited to a, a community that was a pretty significant chunk of the top players in the game. And he had only spent a few bits. He, he uh, Like eight, 18 bucks, I think, is what he said he had spent. And... Uh, uh, so he wasn't himself a quote whale unquote. For those who don't know, this is a, a term that comes from gambling that refers to big spenders. Um, and he just wrote about his experiences, like rubbing shoulders with these big spenders and insights that he had into their uh, behavioral patterns and so forth. And and uh, Blake works a lot with uh, customers of of various games, so I thought it would be uh, intriguing uh, to get his insight and all of this. So, uh, Blake, do you have any uh, particular um, like first reactions to, to what was uh, talked about in this article? <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. So, for for some background context, I, I work uh, in the customer service department. I'm responsible for for setting up uh, all of our sort of customer relationship management software. So, anytime anyone submits a ticket, it usually bounces through a few filters that I set up to kind of help identify what their problem is or um, different trends that might be happening. And I, I make sure that everyone's tickets get sorted in the most efficient way and um, are tagged with certain things so that we, we can track trends and we can figure out, you know, what's going on. And so I see a lot of these, these whales come in and this is such a, a fascinating thing to me. You know, I've, I've only been in the mobile business for a little over a year now. And this, this whole whale thing was something that I had always heard about, but I, I never really knew what those kind of numbers look like. And it was, it was just amazing to me when I, when I first got into it to, to see what, what the spend looks like for some of these people who want to be like the very best. And, you know, they're the people that you know by name on the forums and they're always at the top of, of everything. So reading this, it was kind of fascinating to have a perspective of, someone who was was basically like amongst these whales instead of just you know getting one side of the conversation from them and um you know it's interesting some some of the games that i've worked on they they don't have any of these sort of uh at one point in the article they mentioned something about having a thousand dollar item to purchase you know we we don't have anything like that in in the games that i, I work on but it's it's just crazy to me um how much money that they spend, but the, these people really care about this game and the longevity. And it is interesting to see the different kinds of personalities uh, that exist amongst these whales. 
Yeah, I I find it interesting. You say that that you find it crazy how much money they spend, and um, one of the uh, points that uh, the guy writing the article and uh, I feel like a heel right now because I can't remember the name. But if you look up Game of Sutra Swimming with Whales, you'll find the same article and you can see his name and everything. Uh, and I'll link to it in the description uh, of the article his, here. So his name is uh, Brandon Brandon Sheffield. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I was going to guess that, and I was not <laughs> confident enough to try. But Wow, I, my memory usually isn't that good with names. Anyhow, uh, one of the things he talked about was a, a compulsion loop. And if a game has a good compulsion loop, you can get more spending. Um, and one of the... I think this is one of the disconnects when it comes to talking about free-to-play games, because, I mean... On an ideological standpoint, I kind of think of free-to-play games as, like, really generous arcade games. There's a whole lot of free stuff you can do, but at a certain point, if you want to keep playing... Well, not necessarily at a certain point, that implies a, a, a barrier. But there's a point where you can pay money if you want to. And if players are really engaged and are perceiving good entertainment experience value from it, they're more willing to invest in it. And you give them some contiguous world, some contiguous service, and maybe they'll be willing to invest more. I mean, that, I mean that that's kind of how I look at it. Some, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, totally. Um, when I say it's crazy, it's it's less so from a like, you know, man, we're totally taking advantage of these people thing. It's <laughs> it's definitely like I I understand that these people love some of these games so much, and and like, it's not that they feel bad about doing this or or that we force them to you know put up this money at all it's just it's such a sort of different mentality for me growing up um kind of outside of this free-to-play model and it's always sort of like you know you you buy a game and you generally know exactly what you're in for you know it's like you, you put your 60 dollars down and you get x amount of game whereas these free-to-play games um are so open-ended that you you can keep doing these loops uh you know theoretically for forever and so it's just sort of like the money trickles in a lot more over time and it's it's interesting to see the impact that that's having over on uh you know console or pc games where where these sort of microtransactions or the uh the longevity of these games are outlasting what they ever could have and so it's just sort of now about building these communities around certain games that have these really strong loops that they want to keep sort of uh, funding and and uh, being a part of to keep going. Because, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, is that if if the business model wasn't set up like this, then we, we couldn't pay to keep the game going in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Um, I say it all the time on this show. Business got a business. You know, someone's got to pay the piper. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I, I keep seeing the fallacy on the business side. It's like, oh, you just make a free to play game and you start putting in some simple Skinner box stuff and you compel people to pay and you just rake in a bunch of money and <laughs> that does not work. There has to <laughs> exactly. be something at the core compelling about the game to actually get them to convert to playing, to paying customers. So you definitely know, it's it, the, the free to play market is brutal. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, for for every game that you hear about that's, you know, making these truckloads of money, like like your Pokemon Go's or your Clash of Clans, things like that, there's, you know, 99% of the rest of the population, you know, died on the vine. Oh yeah. 
Maybe, like like even even Supercell itself, when when Clash Royale came out, said you know one of the reasons that that we make sure this is a good game was because to get Clash Royale out, we actually killed six other games. Yeah, and I, I played a couple of them. Spooky Pop was pretty lame. <laughs> I, I don't think I ever got around to that one. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I think that one got as far as Canada before they canned it. Uh, yeah. Um, another point. And I don't know if you've seen this in any of the stuff you've been working on, but the the um, in the article he was talking about um, because he was invited to a group with all these uh, top players, and it wasn't a group within the game. It was like an external chat channel where they could congregate and talk about the game. I don't know if it was a sponsored forum or anything like that. It sounded like it wasn't, but um, I don't know if you've ever encountered anything like that where they just sort of... Uh, come together outside of the game itself or anything like that yeah you know we see that a bit on the forums um they'll, they'll kind of come together and a lot of them will they'll have these custom signature banners created and there's kind of this it, it's similar um it's not entirely the same but you you see these groups kind of get together on the forums and they start to develop these kind of inside jokes amongst one another and you see certain you know big whales or big spenders in one group kind of trying to get together with the guys in the guild and the other group and, you know, battle each other. So uh, we aren't aware right now of any sort of like separate messaging service aside from uh, either our in-game chat or our forums, but I'm sure that it's got to exist. Hmm. All right. I, I just found that one a, 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 an interesting idea, those kinds of uh, uh organic customer driven communities yeah and you know what i found interesting too was it it seemed like the way that this article was written that they act actively uh searched him out instead of you know he just kind of found himself into the group so it's kind of like these these top players all want to know and want to be involved with each other and that you know that can be great to keep fostering this uh, engagement and attachment to the game it kind of brings it outside and it has it you know the, the more you can have people thinking about your game the, the obviously the better that is so if, if people are developing these little communities around just talking about your game that's great and it can also be terribly bad when something in the game inevitably goes wrong and now you've got this huge mob of your biggest spenders who are all united on a single front uh <laughs> that, that can be a little daunting to deal with <laughs> Yeah, because um, it's uh, one of the uh, uh, points that he brought up was how balance changes can mess with people, can can really upset players. And uh, from my point of view, that that kind of hits on uh, something that I kind of realized was that anytime you make you do anything or make any change that in any way can give the impression that you're taking something away from people, uh, that will drive them straight up the wall and not unjustifiably so because if they're in a position where they paid specifically for you know a, a, a character or something then you they, they go through a nerf it's like well I, I i paid for the unnerfed version of it specifically and now you changed it and what i you have changed the experiential value of what i purchased you know yeah that that gets really complicated i mean any kind of balance changes like that you know, you might have a some sort of vocal users on your group who are screaming out that, you know, so-and-so is overpowered or you need to modify this. 
but then you do it and you get all those other people who may have paid for whatever overpowered or perceived overpowered uh, character object item that they have, you know, now they're all upset and it's just sort of this damned if you do damned if you don't type of thing. And in my experience, uh, I think that that's, that's like a really delicate balance from what I've seen. Um, you know, another thing that he brings up in the article is talking about uh, it's good to keep these these whales uh, knowledgeable as to you know when patches are coming out or things like that because if they're constantly living with this anxiety that there's like going to be a patch that comes out and they need to have all of their items you know stockpiled up then they're just not going to spend it anything you know and the the revenue is going to stop mm-hmm. um, but but by sort of committing to certain dates or or keeping them in the loop about where things are going, you know, things, things can change so fast. It's so often that, you know, there will be this, this great new feature that we think is going to be awesome. And then it's like a week or two away from needing to submit it. And, and it's like, this, this just doesn't work. This, this breaks the whole game. We got to take it out. And so the disappointment that they would feel if we kind of hyped up this thing that was coming and then it just can't come for whatever reason, you know, that, that could be more damaging to the relationship than anything. Mm. And sometimes that can be complicated because if you're in a position where you're talking with the customers and you're not, say, embedded with the developer, you may not have the best information, the most up-to-date information and the most thorough information to share with the players. Yeah, it, exactly. I mean, that's that's also, yeah, you know, you nailed it. Like, unless you are the person who is making the decisions, then you you don't want to be in the position of saying one thing and then hearing from someone else that like that changed and they don't necessarily have the same one-to-one connection that that you do actively reaching out to these people and so the sort of feeling of responsibility for these things is not nearly as great so it just it creates a lot of really sticky situations you know i think in the ideal world you would keep everyone sort of involved and uh you know, these, these highest players that are sort of funding the whole rest of the game effectively, uh, you know, you want them to be happy and you want to take their suggestions and we definitely do and try to, but there's, there's a inherent imbalance in the relationship that you're trying to maintain where you want to keep them happy, but you also want to do what's, what's best for the the game as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, uh, to kind of take a step back from that, I think some of this is also, uh, and and I think this also hits on some of what what we talked about earlier is, is a lot of this just works into uh, uh, the sort of emergence of the point of view to to look at video games as software as a service, where there's going to be updates coming out. There's going to it's not going to be a static thing. It's not going to be around forever. It's it's like you buy a $60 game, you get it, it's static. You buy uh, a month of World of Warcraft, you know, there might be tweaks that happen in that month, and then that month goes up, and you're gone. And, and you know, the World of Warcraft model has changed since then, and I, I never played it too much, so, you know, uh, that's not exactly the, the most accurate example, but, you know, the point remains. You, know, you buy a subscription or something, it can change. It's a different thing. And now we're at a thing, we're, we're, we're entering this place where you're not strictly buying this as a subscription you're not buying something that's static you don't even necessarily have to buy it 
uh, uh, but to try to keep something engaging for players and enjoyable, you there there are changes that are going to have to happen. Be it uh, expanding the game, rebalancing it, adding new features, maybe taking away old features, something like that. And that's just um, an inherent sort of potential pitfall when looking at games as software as a service. Definitely, totally agree. And I feel like that's. I feel like for every single game, you know, you kind of got to work out what that looks like. I don't think that there's necessarily a, a formula of, you know, you put it out and you do this, this, and this, and then you're going to have a successful game. You, you definitely have to, to adapt and, and see what's working, what isn't working, and uh, evolve. I mean, the whole nature of this this business is you want to put out something that has these these really core, compelling loops that people want to play, and and then you need to sort of continue to iterate on it. Um, you you need to constantly change. You need to figure out what's working. Uh, one one example that I could use that I I found really interesting because I feel like it it brought a bunch of these players who weren't typically like free to play players into the space has been Hearthstone. Um, you know, brought a lot of Blizzard people into these sort of card games that that weren't ever they didn't ever really take off that much you know you always had magic but that's sort of its whole other entity and exists i would argue more in the physical space than digital and now you yeah, have Hearthstone. magic the gatherings rules do not translate well into video game format no no and yeah and, and hearthstone can do such interesting things with with its randomness or the way that you get cards the way that every, everything interacts you know it brought all these people in and it kind of introduced them to this world of like, I have everything for, for free and I can do these sort of daily quests and get my gold and pay for my packs that way. But, but people dump all this money into like buying more and more packs and that that's great for the game. And as the game goes on, they need to sort of, they need to adjust where it's like inevitably what happens is towards the end of every season, there's these sort of top tier decks that are constantly everyone's playing them you know you you basically either have awesome deck or you have the silver bullet to awesome deck and blizzard needs to come in and and make these modifications and maybe tweak cards or introduce new cards into the pool and i'm sure that they have these things planned out well in advance but there there's a certain aspect of it where it's like you know we didn't realize that this thing was going to have this effect on the community and now we need to modify it and just recently they had some articles come out where they're going to be tweaking their whole arena system, which is kind of, uh, to use like a, a card game analogy, it's sort of like their drafting uh, aspect of the whole thing. And so they're, they've been realizing after the game's been out that they need to make these certain tweaks and they're, they're going to try it out and they're going to see how it goes. And some people are probably going to be unhappy about it. You know, probably their favorite card isn't going to be in it anymore and they're going to, you know cry out from the top of the mountaintop that the game is dead, but th these are things that they have to do. Yep. It's uh, like you said, it's a damned if you do damned, if you don't, if uh, people are going to buy into an experience and that experience has to evolve to remain engaging, the changing, you can't keep everybody happy. Yeah, definitely. Uh, to, to talk about another point in the article that I, that I found really interesting um, was this whole thing about, he was finding the the author of this article was finding that a lot of the the whales skewed older 
which which seems like a on paper seems like a pretty obvious kind of thing you know they're the ones who have the money to actually spend these big bucks on these kinds of items and are a bit more uh, established um and he kind of tied that into that usually these whales they just have like their one game and that is their game and that's what they play and so as i mentioned earlier when i first sort of came into this mobile space and i was like my eyes were like really wide looking at this like you know how how could you spend this much money on this one game it's shocking to me and i i kind of came to the realization that <laughs> overall i probably spend just as much or at least a, a competitive amount of money compared to these people i just spread it out over a whole bunch of games you know i mm. grew up wanting you know this little experience over here this little experience over here or, you know this new game's out and so i have a, a wide collection of a whole bunch of things that i've spent more money than i probably should have on and it's just <laughs> that these older uh players they, they don't necessarily have the the time or you know i, I don't know how to really put it but it's just like the willingness they, or the flexibility to jump from one title to another. Exactly. I think flexibility is, is what you nailed right there. So it's more like they can be the best or, you know, really heavily compete at this one thing. And so it's not that they're spending, you know, these absurd amounts of money that they wouldn't be spending on other things. It's just, they're all kind of funneling it into their one thing. Right. And, and I think that's something that kind of gets overlooked often. Hmm. So you can kind of think about it as, okay, you've got a professional who wants to play games, has money to spend on games. The budget might be the same as another, another person. And instead of, like you said, instead of spending it in all place, they spend on one place. So if anyone out there, if you think about your stack of shame, all those games <laughs> that you've bought that you haven't got to yet, you may have picked it up on sale on Steam or something. What would happen if you took all of that money for the games you haven't played or may never play and put them into one free play free to play game? How much value would you get out of that? You know? Yeah, that's probably quite a bit. You're you're making <laughs> me feel bad about my my personal Steam library of shame, but <laughs> um yeah, I mean I think I think it's really similar, you know, and and the thing is is unlike the stacks of shame that some of us can build up, like these people are seeing immediate like they get something immediately when when they spend some money, you know, that they're uh -huh. they're gonna go use. I've I've got. Tons they're, they're, of games. You might say they're paving the the road that they will be walking. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Unlike me, and I'm sure plenty of other people who've just you know got all these games in their Steam libraries that they've never touched, but it was sort of a game to buy them at two dollars on a Steam sale, you know, four years ago. Mm-hmm. And that kind of brings me back to that uh, arcade analogy. I mean, like, how much do people complain that an arcade costs 25 or 50 cents to play? And you can maybe get, you know, an hour of enjoyment out of it for two bucks. But you don't really think about it if you're buying something on Steam, because in your brain you kind of think of it as a, um, a, a, a permanent fixed thing. And some people might reject it in a free-to-play game because it's this ethereal thing, even though... In the in the sort of the the case that we just described, you're gonna get, actually get something from this ethereal thing, and you may never even get to the concrete thing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so another interesting thing that that I thought about this article that 
kind of ties into what we were just talking about too is is the idea of sunsetting these games you know mm-hmm. eventually it gets to the point where this game is going to go away unless you're some crazy game i can't think of any you know sort of free to play but unless you're sort of like the, a giant mmos game or something like that that just can go on for years and years so you're mm-hmm. going to you're going to have to sunset this game eventually ultima online is still around <laughs> shocking but but even ultima online one day eventually it might mm-hmm. die unless some guys just decide to pick it up and run it on their private server for you know everyone to play on uh but and even then Someone's got to pay for that server. <laughs> exactly. It's true. Um, so for me, the idea of sunsetting a game was something that I hadn't even considered until I, w- I got into the mobile space. And it, it was kind of this big, scary thing for me at first. Like, like oh, man, I've, I feel kind of weird about this. You know, there's all these people who have, who have paid X amount of money, and now they're not going to have this thing anymore. Uh, but as as we've been discussing like a lot of these things are generally like they've they've gotten their use out of it or the items are have already been spent you know they've already done these things and they're they're going to probably find another game that's similar hopefully you know if if you're a publisher like you've got another game that you can kind of funnel them onto and have them enjoy and hopefully you've built up these relationships with them over time that they trust you and they feel like they've gotten their worth out of the game uh, so far in the few games that I've seen sunset, I haven't seen any sort of giant outcry of, <laughs> of you know, people revolting and that, that we're doing something terrible. I think it just kind of comes with the territory. Of... Well, I, I, I think what also comes there is if it's at the point where you want to shut down the game or sunset it, that you want to do that because these really vocal paying players aren't around anymore. That's true. Yeah. Uh, you know, you all, you always have one or two holdouts, but, but generally you get to this point because these, these players aren't around anymore and you can't afford to, to keep up the pace of putting out new content and, and things like that. And so it's, it's really trying to do the best thing for the game instead of just letting it have this, this long dying, you know, end, it will end and you'd rather end it on a, on a somewhat solid note than, just let it peter out. Yeah. Um, what One thing that, that we've been kind of dancing around here, I think, for a bit, that uh, wasn't in the article itself so much, but was brought up in the comments, uh, you know, talking about a compulsion loop or something. There was a lot of conversation in the comments about, uh, I suppose you might call it the morality of the free-to-play system, because... We, we were kind of talking before about, you know, Skinner Box make money, blah, 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 uh, that a lot of free-to-play games are based on psychological tricks to kind of trick players into uh, spending money on these games, which mm-hmm. I found I don't agree with. Oh, um, no. And, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go, go on. No, there, there was a couple of... Uh, Oftentimes when I see these kind of debates play out on, on message boards, there's usually two people who are both way off the mark. One of them might be more correct, but is presenting things in a uh, kind of incorrect way. And I think that was happening here because, you know, uh, expanding the opponent's point to, to an absurd level. Um, saying like, oh, so you're saying that they don't have control over their own spending or something like that. Uh, I think one of the ways I think about it 
is sort of similar to what we've been talking about. But you can say like, okay, for example, how many people, you know, have stacks of shame or uh, to put it in a more real sense, like have a set of golf clubs and don't use them. How much money was spent there? Or, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. You get something to, or exercise equipment. How many people get exercise equipment and wind up not using it? And there's a whole <laughs> bunch of ways that this can go. I mean, there's a psychological trick in any, depending on how you want to define, there's a psychological trick involved in pretty much any sale. You want to make someone want something and be willing to spend money for it. And the ethics comes into it if, uh, if you're trying to convince someone against their better judgment. Right. And, you know, it, it's not it's not a situation where we're, you know, running this this evil algorithm in the background and we're targeting the most vulnerable people. and We kind of like prey upon them. Like, <laughs> yes, give us your money. And there, uh, there, there are definitely less scrupulous free to play games that try it, to push stuff like that. But for the most part, I don't think that's really how it goes. Yeah, exactly. You especially, know, you, especially because if there were a uh, sorry to interrupt, but especially if there were a really solid sort of algorithm to compel people to do it, free-to-play games wouldn't have the kind of failure rate that they do that we talked about. Exactly. Yeah, you know, and I think if you look at the majority of free-to-play games, like, you, you will see that, you know, it's not like we're holding a gun to your head or that you need to... We don't force anyone or, you know, make them feel bad if, if you don't spend any money or anything. Like, you'll always be able to find the outlier games that do have the, you know, $1,000, $5,000 vanity item or whatever that you can point to and sort of shame and say, like, this is how everything is. But that's just, realistically, that's not the case, you know? Like, it doesn't happen in real life. Yeah. At least not not very often. <laughs> uh, and anyway, it, it, that reminds me of something I wanted to say earlier. You were talking about... Um, uh, Again, kind of about the failure rate and, and being able to predict what would work and what wouldn't. And, you know, really, if you wanted to predict if any – you take any game pitch and you can have probably a 99% plus success rate if you take all of the game pitches that are made and you want to say if it will be a success or a failure and just say failure to everything. <laughs> but there, you can't make a living doing that. The, the, the valuable part is being able to figure out which ones will succeed. And, uh, there is, I don't know if there's exactly a formula, but certainly there is a, a, a set wisdom or logic to figuring out what level of success a movie can have. Because if you look at, now there's certainly flops and there's certainly things that, that, uh, the studios get this stuff wrong on. But if you look at a lot of movies and you look at how much is spent on production and you look at how much they made at the box office, a lot of times they're really close. Yeah. So there's a lot of just understanding, okay, this is going to appeal to these people. It's going to, you know, get this much traction with this market that is worth this much, which means this movie can be worth this much money. So this is how much you're going to get to produce it. Exactly. I mean, there's, there's so many of those calculations that happen on the back end about, you know, this is the sort of audience that we're trying to reach with, with this game because it has these features and, things get priced accordingly you know it's we're we're not going to price something as some sort of extraordinary amount it's just like we we believe that this audience of players will pay this much money for this kind of an experience and there isn't anything that's sort of predatory 
towards them. It's just, you know, if, if people feel like they are going to get some sort of value out of it, they'll, they'll put it up to be available, you know? Yeah. And, and just one of the big problems is uh, for the video game industry is that there isn't like, we can take a lot of guesses and we can take a lot of educated guesses, but the business forecast accuracy in video games is nowhere near as good as it is in, in film. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't know if you, if you chalk that up to just that film's been around longer or just that sort of the nature of film is, uh, you know, it's, it's not like you have like free to play film, right? You know, like <laughs> there's, there's been so many models of how you release games, you know, be it just from you, you put it out and it's done to DLC to episodic to free to play, you know, like there's, there's all of these different methods of delivery or experience that it just doesn't exist in in other industries you know like books or uh or movies or anything like that you know it's it's much more a tried and true system whereas games have and will probably always continue to be very experimental in the way that they deliver content and you have to always kind of figure out like how do you price these things how do you get these out to your audience how do you make money yeah i think there is uh, uh, I think that video games will never be as stable as films on that, but I do think that video games can be a lot better. And I attribute some of that to it being a younger medium. I also attribute some of it to the industry in many ways is less mature than film. And by that, I mean, you know, uh, development of business tactics as well as uh, uh, mindset of the people in the industry. There's a lot of I, I've talked about it before in, a, in an old article that there's just not that there aren't a lot of great, intelligent, uh, compassionate, uh, highly ethical people in the industry. But there's a certain there's a certain bend to it where there is um, you might say a youthful energy and it comes it can come out as as an immaturity um uh, one example of this would be the fallacy of making a game that I want to play rather than making a game that there is a market for. <laughs> yes, and that's kind of what I mean by immaturity. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of other ways you can talk about immaturity in video games for sure, but uh, this is this is kind of how I'm I'm uh, referencing it here. Yeah, it, yeah, you know that that's definitely a, a whole nother deep rabbit hole to go down yeah that's a topic for a whole nother podcast right there oh yeah oh yeah like i said i've i've written about this in the past so um but uh kind of getting back to to the the article and in particular the comments another one of the uh threads that they had was a a rejection of the idea or, or um sort of uh sort of cringing at or reeling against the idea of a virtual currency which to me, for one thing, indicates that um, these people haven't made a free-to-play game because, you know, Game of Sutra is an industry site, so a lot of people who will write and comment on these things work in the industry. And if they're going to complain about virtual currency, I think that they have not actually made a game or <laughs> uh, have not, certainly not made a mobile free-to-play game. Right. Uh, because... Trying to have direct spending like that is super difficult because you're going to have different price points and values for everything. Uh, uh, and having that virtual currency just 
makes that so much simpler and smoother and is almost required right well, to and- work on the uh apple the the iTunes app store and the Google Play store and also by having a virtual currency what it does for you is it gives you a way for uh for players to actually just earn these these things out of playing you know if, oh, if, yeah, you yeah. if you didn't have a digital currency it's not like we're going to start crediting money to your account that you can then <laughs> use to pump back into our ecosystem yeah and that, yeah. And that, that, that goes to, to your side of things too where you like with that admin tool if something happened to a player and they need something back they need to be compensated for something you can actually give them an appropriate amount rather than a direct item or something exactly yeah and I mean even if you were to take that sort of uh, that even farther where it's like, if, if we have something happen where we maybe need to take the game down for a couple hours or re- repair something or do something on our end, it gives us the ability to now give out, uh, like game wide, a whole bunch of currency to people. Uh, that's just something that we couldn't do or wouldn't do if, if this was real money, Yeah, you know, it, it allows you to have a lot more flexibility in how you get things out to the players and what kind of things you can do you know you can run these different events to encourage currency you can work with your uh, your community managers to you know have some sort of facebook contest or things like that um go go on oh i was going to say that uh, another thing that can come from that is uh you can actually rebalance prices more easily that way because if you spent you know you know 500 gems on a character that would be and and the price got adjusted because you found out oh this is really a 750 gem value character because the players figured out a way to use it in a way we didn't realize you know that'll make people uh, or or actually better is uh, for this example is if it got dropped to say 250 because right. you realized some balancing stuff because you know players will figure out things that you can't figure out um if it's through gems, then you can reward some gems back to compensate or handle things in a different way. If it was this $5 character is now 250 then a bunch of people are going to feel like you just stole 250 from them. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, uh, I mean, that opens up a whole other can of worms, too, where if, if you can't sort of gift back these digital currencies, then you have to start dealing with people who inevitably start looking for refunds and that gets to be a whole complicated mess where now you're kind of involving apple and google to a certain degree and it's just something that you don't want to deal with and then there are those people who start threatening lawsuits because of uh uh, you know violating trade laws or something oh yeah those are always entertaining it's just you know (laughs) here's here's my lawyer's name and address go go ahead (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah, I mean, just the this whole idea of of these whales in general, it's just you know, it's such a, it's such an interesting thing for me to observe. And I I heard a talk that was made by I believe it was um, the person who's the head of the their sort of uh, they call them you know VIPs. We we try to too um, their VIP program uh, at Zynga, and it's just it's so interesting how these companies that have the scale to do these kinds of things, the way that they interact with them. Um, she was going on talking about how basically like they have separate from community managers, they have these like VIP managers who have a certain number of, of these VIPs that they're in charge of. And they get to know these people on a personal basis. You know, they'll 
give them a call once a week to like check in and see how everything's going. They'll send them a card on their birthday, different things like that. Like it becomes this whole bigger kind of uh, service that that you're providing and uh, people get a lot of value out of that. Yeah, that kind of that, um, that that kind of uh, reflects uh, a, in a broader sense software as a service as well, because you know even in um, other sort of industrial or technical software stuff, you'll get you know the sales rep might you know whine and dine you a bit to try to get you to buy the license or something like that, mm-hmm. and you know if you're a big thing, they'll spend more time and effort trying to keep you happy using their product, and you know it's not unreasonable that that would translate to games as well. When you describe it that way, it does sound a lot like the uh, the gambling thing at a casino. You know, you just start getting comped rooms and drinks and stuff to try to keep gambling. <laughs> right, so, right. like, you, th- there's a lot of overlap conceptually with a lot of this stuff. But I, uh, um, you know, like you mentioned, you try to call them VIPs rather than whales. And that, that was another point that I wanted to bring up from the, the comment section was there was a lot of discussion about you know, how valid should we consider the term whale? Personally, I don't like it either. I prefer calling them VIPs because that's what they are in just about any other industry. It's just right. somehow we wound up using, I, I, I don't know how this term transitioned from gambling and casino management into video games, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, you know, knows? we wound up using it and it kind of caught on. And then you get this weird et- etymology of, you know, you got to, uh, someone who spends a fair amount, but they're they're not you know a whale. They haven't spent you know a thousand plus dollars, and maybe they spend two hundred bucks, and they're like a, a, a porpoise. <laughs> yeah, or, you know you what's know, funny. Someone like, spends fifty, and they're an otter. Or some this, this marine mammal terminology is ridiculous. Well, you you joke about that, but at one point we we acquired this other studio, and we were working on sort of in, integrating them in with with all of our sort of uh, processes and procedures. And I was looking at the way that they had set up their VIP program, and it was exactly as you described, where you have your whales, but then you've got your marlins, and then you've got like oh. you've got your tunas, and it's just like, no, no, guys, like, sorry, this is this is all going away. Yeah, this is the terminology you're using here is not conducive to a healthy mindset to actually giving customers the best service you can, exactly, because you're dehumanizing them. Yeah, I, I know you think you're being cute, but we're we're gonna adjust this a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I definitely don't like the term whale. I only, anytime I use it is just to be understood because that's what other people use. And I usually try to transition to uh, VIP when I can. Right. It is so pervasive. I may slip here and there though, of course. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, these people at the end of the day, like they, they are important to your business strategy and, and you, you want to develop these relationships with them. You don't want to dehumanize them and they're important to keep around. You know, they're, they're not like things that on our end that we're just looking at as these money bags that we can just keep squeezing for everything that they're worth. It's we, we want to help them out. We want to be on top of when they have a problem or when they need something or whatever's going on with them. And a lot of the times, like if, if we do have any of these really big problems with the game that are going on, you know, we'll reach out to them personally and be like, look, you know, we know that this is affecting you and we want to try to keep you as in the loop as we can. And, you know, if you need anything, like here's how to directly contact us. Hmm. So, well, you know, uh. 
And, you know, of course, the time, the moment you know you've really made it, it though, is when someone sends you a death threat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> those, those are always entertaining. Um, I mean, what, what you'll start seeing, though, is, like, people people start to get to know whoever they're encountering on somewhat of a of a named basis so to give you an example you know some of our our uh, community managers they get like summoned basically to certain threads when the vips like they want some sort of an answer they want to have some sort of dialogue with us and you know we'll go in there and we'll try to talk to them as much as we can or you'll start seeing them submitting tickets like calling out very specific people <laughs> like i want to talk to so and so and sometimes we make that happen you know it, it kind of depends on what's going on of yeah. course you do have the people who haven't spent a dime and they they think that they deserve like all of this service and they will give you your death threats and everything and it's like you know i, I want to help you out but you're not <laughs> You're not making it uh, very appealing to do so right now. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the point where players also have to realize, like, you can't insist that someone there spend, you know, 10 hours trying to solve your problem uh, when you haven't spent any money. You know? Exactly. And, I mean, yeah. like you said, we want to help. We want to make everybody happy, but there's a certain point where if you treat everything in 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 that way, the whole system just breaks down because business got a business. Yeah. You know, it's help, help us help you. You see the people who haven't spent a dime yet. They will completely spam your system over and over cursing at you that you're not helping them. And it's like, I'm trying to help. I'm, I just need to close your 19 other tickets before <laughs> we can have this one conversation. Um, and a lot of the times, you know, they'll come to you, upset and they just want to be upset and they want to yell at someone whereas the the vips who have put some money into the game it seems like they're a little bit more interested in working with you to come up with a problem you know they're they're invested in this game they've you know put money into it they they just want things to work and so they're usually a little bit calmer they they get upset for sure but they're usually able to be talked off the ledge you know you, you can yeah. calm them down you can help get what they want and you can move on from there yeah it sounds like they are and, and this is just kind of the terms that come to mind as you're describing it they sound like they're so engaged with the game to become vips i'll use the the term i prefer here uh to spend enough to be considered vips that they understand that this game is you're trying to work with them you know, as opposed to someone who may not have spent any money and feels a false sense of entitlement. Exactly. I mean, as long as you give them like the good service, you're, you're not terrible to them. Like they, they get that you're there for them and maybe things aren't working out for them in the game right now, but they want to come to a conclusion just as much as you do. And so it makes that working relationship a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Um, There was one other thing I wanted to point out. Now my brain is failing me. Hmm. Well, uh, any other points you'd like to talk about on the article? Um, you know, the, the only thing that, that stood out to me as being something interesting that I haven't personally been able to experience yet was it was interesting when they were talking about uh, basically the Chinese servers being mm. sort of 
like fortune tellers as to what what would be to come. Yeah, I would actually have considered that one uh, poor game management. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I, I'd be curious to see what that looks like from a developer or a publisher's perspective, um, kind of managing that. Where I personally haven't been in a situation where it's sort of like you have these two very distinctly different builds of a game going on. Usually it's all been sort of one thing worldwide and you may still have different regions, but you're kind of keeping everything synchronized as you're rolling it out. Like all the players are in the same pool, even if there is some separation on the client side or something, you can still have all the different regions, you know, interact with each other. The game that they were talking about in the article, it sounded more like, you had two completely segregated player bases, different clients, different servers, different customer support groups, everything. Right. And I mean, it also seemed like you had to have had some of those big whales in both because mm-hmm. they, they were basically the ones who were, you know, translating everything and bringing it down to tell everyone else, you know, here's all the cool stuff that's going on. It's just sort of a interesting dynamic where, you know, here in the West, you might have like these uh, like PTRs or whatever. But to bring it back to something like that Blizzard uses, you know, you have these these ways for people to beta test certain features that are coming. But I mean, it's not like that needs to transition across languages or countries or it's just so much different than the way that I've experienced anything personally. Hmm. Oh, and I remember the other thing I wanted to get into. There was actually a point uh, 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 a couple years ago where I was doing some customer support myself, and there was <laughs> I was the only person doing it. it, was, it everything had gotten very small at that point. And it's the funny thing about it was uh, this was for a game that was basically it was supporting its own existence by virtue of its existence being very cheap to support, I think, at this point. Mm-hmm. And there were people writing in tickets about you know us being so greedy and uh uh, like referencing how much money we must be making (laughs) and having some insight into how much money we were actually making like wow you are so off the mark right yeah like like writing in a ticket assuming that there's a team of like 30 people working on stuff like let me talk to your supervisor and it's only me i'm like Okay, I'm just going to write back saying I am the supervisor and not clarify that I'm the same person you were talking to before. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you <laughs> it's know, kind it's, of it's just the kind of thing I felt I had to do to kind of try to appease this person. Yeah, you you always get a kick out of the people who write in where they've they've done some sort of math or research that, that they think <laughs> is correct. You know, my favorites whenever we get people sending us long pieces of code where it's like this will fix your game and it's like (laughs) you know (laughs) i see where you're going but you're leaving out you know 99 percent of the rest of the code that makes this thing function it's like we're (laughs) just going to plug your your one piece in and everything's going to magically work um or or the people who say like oh the millions of players that are playing this game do we got a dow of maybe 10k (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's always funny you know People make a lot of assumptions there. I get where it's coming generally from a good place where they, they want to try to justify it to themselves or to the rest of the people that they're playing with, but it's just, it's so wrong so mm-hmm. often. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, there's, there's, it's one of those kind of point of view things where, you know, and, and perspective things, you know, where, you know, it makes sense given what you know, and you don't realize it, it's the unknown unknown. You didn't know that you didn't know these things. Exactly. At the end of the day, you know, we're, we're not trying to do anything shady or malicious. Like we want, we want the game to work just as much as you do. We, we want to price things fairly so that people will actually pay for them you know we, and we want everybody to have fun with the game exactly you know we, we wouldn't make a game that's it, that just it's, it's sucks fun your it's money funny up. it's funny how often that that uh premise comes up on the show <laughs> about like, that uh you guys just want people to enjoy playing the game yeah we're not do, we're not trying to be predatory and malicious we want everybody to have fun honest and sincere <laughs> Yeah, and then so often people are like, "Oh, you're greedy, you're blah blah blah, predatory, Skinner box, all these other accusations." Like, uh, that's the internet for you. It's a number of things for you. <laughs> okay, um, so I think we've covered pretty much everything we wanted to in the article, and I think that was some good insights. And this is the point of the show where I like to uh, share kind of a you know, work-related anecdote. Uh, Blake, did you have anything you'd like to tell about uh, an experience you've had? Yeah, so, you know, as I mentioned towards the beginning of the show, I, I haven't been in the game industry for a, a hugely long time. Uh, just I actually just celebrated my, my first year anniversary uh, at my current company uh, not too long ago. And there's all of these little things that are, like, funny to adjust to in the games industry that... I didn't experience anywhere else. And I had one of those moments uh, probably a month or two ago where you just sort of, it dawns on you like this this could only sort of exist in the games industry. Uh, and that was when Pokemon Go came out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, working in mobile, like that game was so huge that I felt like everyone at the office had it at some point. And it was just fascinating to me how quickly this sort of following got built up. So all of a sudden now we had like a Skype group where everyone's, <laughs> everyone's telling each other where the Pokemon are popping up. And we had these two points in the office that were Pokestops. And so it was sort of like one group on one side would report in if anything good was popping up over there. And the other group on the other side of the office would, you know, chime in. And so you had this huge group of people who would always have their phones out running back and forth across the office, you know, especially in the early weeks when, when people didn't have a lot of these, these Pokemon, they're just running back and forth. And at one point we decided we would, uh, we would take a walk and, there was supposed to be like a Tangela or something around the corner. So we go trudging along and we catch it. And all of a sudden, down a couple blocks away, we see this huge mass of people just <laughs> like sprinting across the block. And we're like, we don't know what's going on, but we have a pretty good idea that there's got to be something good over there. So we're all running down the street. And sure enough, like this, this mass has like stopped and everyone's got their phones out. And they're in this big circle as you know because the kabutops had popped up and so you know everyone's trying to catch this thing and they're all yelling and some people are happy that they got it other people are terribly disappointed that it ran away should have used more raspberries yeah. um but it was just sort of one of those moments where i had to like take a second and look around and just be like this this kind of culture this kind of thing like i can't imagine exists in most other sort of industries or yeah or jobs that people have. And it's just it's things like that, that 
you take for granted, I'm sure, after a <laughs> while. And it uh, just makes me really happy to be where I'm at now. Yeah, you're describing it. I'm, I'm in my head. I'm picturing kind of like a a, a moment in like one of those triumphant moments at the end of a movie <laughs> where there's like a boom camera spinning around as you're looking around this group and you just have this wow, this is cool look on your face. Exactly. Yeah, you know, it's it's the little things like that that make you happy to to be at work and show up. Yeah. All right. Um. Cool. I, I, Pokemon Go is one of those, I, I, I've been calling it a once ever kind of thing. It's not even once in a lifetime. This is a, a, a mix of things that we'll never see again. Yeah. And even, even if everything blows up tomorrow, it's, it's been a, it, it will have been a glorious and fascinating, uh, time just seeing what happened there. Yeah, I mean, and, hopefully, what keeps happening, you know, I, I yeah, hope that and, this because, game continues to be around and evolve. And I certainly yeah. am not playing it as much as I was those first few weeks, but I, I hope that Niantic can kind of keep things going with it. And I'm so excited to see where it goes from here. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've spoken about Pokemon Go a lot at, uh, on this mm. show, and and you know i i am amazed at the fact i'm still amazed the fact that several server clusters didn't spontaneously combust by being crushed with the traffic <laughs> i mean but... they might they might have they very well <laughs> have. Yeah. well then i'm impressed they had such good failover procedures yeah. uh, but um uh, uh yeah also the thing about pokemon go is just all of the the heartwarming stories that have come out about it like you know uh, uh, bringing up conversations about, uh, um, you know, perceptions as people walk around or uh, uh, pointing out how it can help people get over social anxiety or stories about people dropping lures at children's hospitals so the staffers can roll the kids around so they can hunt Pokemon. And even on a practical sense, like businesses dropping lures at their places of business so they can attract more customers and they can just do all this stuff and there's like official tie-ins and it's just expanding all of this stuff. And, you know, the kind of the game itself, oddly enough, challenging cultural assumptions across international borders when you hear about, like, China and India, not China, but uh, Russia and India are, are, you know, kind of having these weird complaints about it uh, because of, of this, that, or the other. And it's just, it, it's amazing to me. It's, it's, it's... Yeah, I mean... Almost if... like the apex of the form at this point. There's people who would complain about that, but... Yeah, it just feels like it was such a sort of like uniting game for everyone where it brought everyone together and there was this this sort of um, sense of mystery about things really early on about how it all worked. And it just seemed like everyone was sort of on board and mm-hmm. and wanted to sort of participate in this this thing that was happening. <laughs> and and. You know, like I said, it just it feels so heartwarming because there's there's some tragic stories about, you know, using it as a tool to facilitate muggings and stuff. But it seems like for every story you see of something like that, there's another five that are just, you know, heartwarming and charming. Yeah, definitely. And, and life affirming. So, yeah, I, I you know, it, like I said, even if it blows up tomorrow, it's been an amazing thing to experience. For sure. And yeah, I mean, like I said, hopefully it continues to uh, evolve and sort of some of the complaints that people are having, hopefully they get addressed and it it continues to be something really cool. Yeah. And I do do not I do not envy any 
customer support or community people at Niantic. <laughs> I don't think anyone in the industry does right now. <laughs> I, 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 if, if I recall correctly on an earlier episode talking about this, the, uh, the, uh, word was that they had someone who quit because of how, how crazy things got and they had to like, pick it back up from nowhere with someone else, which I, I presume they've been able to throw enough money at the problem to get it somewhat mitigated <laughs> at this point. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. It was kind of funny. I, I worked near some of the community managers and I could overhear some conversations with them where they were talking about how they're, they kept getting hit up basically to like, Hey, come work for us. We need a community manager. And all of them <laughs> were just like hard. No, that's not going to happen right now. No hard. No full stop. Yeah. Ah, crazy. All right. Um, any last thoughts or words for everybody, Blake? Uh, no, it was great being on and, you know, hopefully we can chat again as new stuff comes up. It was really fun. Sure. Cool. Thanks for coming. Um, and, uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, if you would like to hear us talk about anything here on Behind Line Radio or see me write about on the Behind Line article series, you can always feel free to reach out to me at kinetic at enthusiacs.com. That's K-Y-N-E-T-Y-K at enthusiacs.com. And join us here next week for the next Behind the Line article and in two weeks for the next Behind the Line Radio. See you next time, everybody. Behind the Line Radio is presented by Enthusiacs.com. For more podcasts, Let's Plays, articles, videos, reviews, and more, visit us at Enthusiacs.com. Also, send us a comment on Twitter at Enthusiacs. View us on YouTube, channel Enthusiacs, and like us on Facebook, Enthusiacs. Enthusiacs.